Marshall and Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Sagar and I are excited to bring back previous Realignment guest, Scott Galloway. He has a new book out today. It's called Adrift, America in 100 Charts. We also spoke with Scott back in December 2020. So if you enjoy this episode, you definitely enjoy that old one as well. Quick few notes before we get into this episode. Number one, if you enjoy this content or any of our other work, you can go to realignment.supercast.com. Once again, that's realignment.supercast.com. There you could subscribe and support the show at a subscription rate of five a month, 50 a year, or 500 for a lifetime membership. Secondly, this is a book episode. So if you'd like to go to our bookshop.org storefront, which is linked in the show notes, you can purchase any of the books we feature or discuss on the show. We get a 10% commission and it goes to support an independent bookseller. So it's definitely right up our alley on 15 different levels. Finally, the Substack is back in action this week. So if you'd like to get access to the written content we put out for the show, go check out the show notes there as well too. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. We'll see you on Thursday. Scott Galloway, welcome back to The Realignment. Thank you, Marshall. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you again. Yeah, great to have you here. And I'm sure the folks of Breaking Points are also going to enjoy this as well. Let's just start at the most basic level. What does it mean for America to be adrift? <sighs> it's the it's the questions you know you're going to get that are the hardest. I think that a lot of uh, a lot of the things that ALS can be can be fixed. I don't think we're lost, but I think that it's going to take. Uh, we need we have very clear issues. And that we've lost some of our mooring. I think our connection to each other, I think our appreciation for what it means to be American, I think a recognition that we need to reinvest back in each other in America has diminished. And as a result, we're adrift. And a quick follow up on that. Adrift suggests, to your point, unmoored. When was the last time do you think we were moored as a society? That's a tough one. I'm not sure there's a... If I had to... If I had to go to a specific time or unmooring, it would be in the early 70s where up until that point, wages had kept pace with productivity. Every time productivity through innovation or a peace dividend or DARPA, or whatever it might be, or you know, manufacturing, whatever assembly line technology, uh, our middle class as buttressed by wages shared proportionally in that productivity. And then something strange happened in the 70s. And I don't know if it was shareholder activism. I don't know if it was this kind of Friedman, what I refer to as sociopathic economics, where we decided to just optimize everything for shareholder value. And wages just flatlined for 50 years while productivity skyrocketed. And that literally that trillions of dollars of surplus value in between wages and productivity has all accreted to what we'll loosely call the shareholder class of which 90% of the benefit has gone to the top 1%. So the unmooring, if you will, if you were going to try and, and there's a lot of things, um, but I think if you were going to try and uh, distill it down to one event, it would be somewhere in the 70s when we decided to optimize for shareholder value versus the middle class. 
Scott, you're kind of known for your charts. Uh, you're reminding me of a W2F happened in 1971.com, which has some great charts 100%. exactly talking about this, the uncoupling exactly of productivity, yep. Yep. wages, and more. What are some of the charts um, in your most recent work that you've been pointing to as the most important that underscore the point you're trying to make about being adrift? Um, something I don't think gets, so what we're talking about gets a lot of attention and a lot of economists talk about mm -hmm. the same thing. And I've been to the site you're talking about. There's a chart, uh, put up that's based on Pew research of a teen survey, um, and survey of young adults. When you're walking down the, the avenue that is America, one in three men under the age of 30 have not had sex in the last year. And you hear the word sex and it fires all these neurons. But what that means in my view is that sex is a key component or step to what is the elemental foundation of any society, and that's a relationship. And I worry that a lot of young men are not attaching to relationships. And I think young men especially need guardrails, and they need a girlfriend, a parent, a partner, a job that says, put on a clean shirt, don't get high or drink during the week, be kind, learn how to read a room, recognize that no one owes you a living and you have to work for things. And I think a lot of young men are adrift, for lack of a better term, and that young men are failing. In the next five years, for every one male graduate from college, there's going to be two female graduates. So double the number of female graduates, college graduates, seven in 10 high school valedictorians are girls. Boys are twice as likely on a behavior-adjusted basis to be suspended. So there's a bias against boys. Uh, and I think the result is a lot of economically and emotionally unviable men and while we don't like to talk about it on the left, women, uh, their primary criteria, especially in a world of online dating, is uh, a man's ability to signal economic viability. And when fewer and fewer men are economically viable, we have decreases in relationships, we have lower birth rates, and we have uh, a cohort that is the most dangerous cohort in the world. And that is a young, broken, alone man. And we're just producing too many of them. So the that chart really stood out to me, that so many men are not engaging in relationships. We keep hearing this number, and also it's mentioned in the book, 30. So to your point, men under 30, Sagar and I are both 30. You graduated from uh, Berkeley with your MBA in 1992 when we were born. That seems to me a, a age where I would love to be 28 to 30 in that year specifically, all this opportunity in front of you. If you were to graduate today into the current set of conditions, let's say you're our age, what, what would you be doing with your time considering these issues? Are you in tech? Are you podcasting? Are you writing? How are you thinking about this moment in comparison to that past one? Well, I'll take the last part. I think my generation has absolutely implemented a set of deliberate policies. There's this delusion of complexity around mm -hmm. the issues that ail us. And that these are big problems, structural issues, and all these forces that are outside of our control have all come together to basically take the wealth of people under the age of 40 and take it from 20% of our GDP or 19% of our GDP to nine, that we accidentally fucked your generation. It was not accidental. It was purposeful. Take the two biggest tax deductions, mortgage interest and capital gains. Who owns a home and who owns stock? People my age. Who rents and gets their income from current income? People your age. What do you need to get ahead? You need education. What field has gone up 1,400% on an inflation-adjusted basis? Education. I mean, just 
who gets cost, who's about to get the biggest cost of living adjusted increase in history? Social Security recipients who happen to be old people. Who gets bailed out during these crises? Old people. It's just, it goes on and on and on about uh, everything we do is to affect a transfer of wealth from people your age to people of my age. So first off, there's just more headwinds in your face than there was in my generation. To be born in 1964, a white heterosexual male in California meant you got near free education from UCLA and Berkeley. My total tuition from UCLA undergrad and Berkeley grad was $7,000. In addition, it was accessible. The admissions rate at UCLA when I applied was 76%. Now it's 6%. So it's not only more expensive for people in your generation, it's less accessible because my generation has entered into this nimbious rejectionist bullshit complexion where uh, once I have my degree, I like that it's hard for you to get a degree because that makes my degree more valuable. Once I have a house, I'm going to put in place all sorts of zoning restrictions that don't make it easy to build new housing because I want my house to go up in value. And once I have a company that's hugely successful, I'm going to spend a ton of money to try and make it impossible for new companies to emerge. So we have this deliberate transfer of wealth from your generation to my generation. So the first is we absolutely need to say, okay, this has happened. We decided it could happen. So we need to unhappen it and not throw up our arms and say, oh, we can't figure this out. Um, in terms of where I would go, I think about this a lot. Advice to young people. Um, one, I would get to the, a city. Just You want to have the winds at your back. Yeah. It's just much easier. I don't know if you, either of you surf, but occasionally I'll surf somewhere where there's an incredible offshore breeze and, and perfect waves, and I talk myself into believing I'm a good surfer. No, I'm not. <laughs> You're you're a great surfer because of the perfect conditions. And then I surf in, you know, real waves, and I realize I don't know how to surf. You want to pick the right beaches, and there's just a few basics. You want to get to a city. Two thirds of economic uh, value or increases in economic value are going to happen in 20 super cities over the next 20 or 30 years. Even with COVID, you're just you'd rather be good in a city than great in a smaller city. You want to get certified for all the the criticism that people don't own college. It's a defense mechanism to make them feel better about the fact that they're being rejected or can't afford it. It's still uh, the graduates of my class at Stern. The average salary is two hundred and twelve thousand dollars. Wow, that's the average. Meaning, someone if is only making one hundred and ten at a nonprofit, there's there's someone <laughs> making three hundred, and these kids are twenty eight, twenty nine. So college, especially at elite universities, is still paying off. Um, I would focus a lot, I mean, this sounds uh, strange, but on mental and physical toughness. Um, work out, try and work out four or five times a week. I think it makes you less prone to depression. It makes you feel better about yourself. It makes you more confident in the pursuit of mates. Uh, it gives you the endurance. When I worked at Morgan Stanley right out of UCLA, uh, I wasn't as well educated as the rest, not because UCLA wasn't a great institution, but because I spent the majority of my five years smoking pot and watching Planet of the Apes. I just was not as skilled as my peers. So I decided every week, Tuesday morning, I'd go to work and I wouldn't leave till Wednesday night. I'd work through the night. I would work 36 hours straight. And I got a reputation as that crazy guy uh, who rode crew at UCLA who used to come in every Tuesday morning and leave Wednesday night. And it sent a signal that I was there to play. And it, it, I could do it. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have dogs. 
I had nothing going on and I was physically really strong and I was mentally strong, uh, mostly from playing sports. And I think that I think young people want to figure out a way to lift heavy weights and run long distances in their mind and in the gym. I think physical and mental toughness, really pushing yourself while you're young, is incredibly powerful. Um, and then I think trying to take a certain amount of your day to invest in relationships really efficiently. Quick text messages. I admire you. I was thinking about you. I thought what you did today in that meeting was really impressive. Um, so education, getting to a city, physical and mental strength, um, you know, the, trying to guess which category, I mean, you know, anything near processing power or software is probably going to, anything around fintech, I think probably the greatest disruption or an interesting place to be would to try and position yourself at the intersection between technology and healthcare, the largest mm -hmm. industry in America that I think is just so ripe for disruption. I would have said that about education, but I keep waiting for the disruption and it keeps not happening. But loosely speaking, some best practices around being physically and mentally tough, getting certified and getting to the right uh, geography. And before you collect dogs and kids, get to a city because once you collect those things, it's very hard to stay in a city. Um, and also, and it sounds very boomerish, give up uh, the notion of balance. Uh, you can have it all. You just can't have it all at once. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows somebody who is makes a shit ton of money, has great relationships, is in good shape, has a food blog and donates time at the SPCA. Assume you are not that person. I did nothing or pretty much nothing but work in my 20s and 30s. It cost me my hair, it cost me my marriage, and it was worth it. I have a lot of balance now. And the reason I have balance is because I have the economic freedom to have balance because unfairly, your career trajectory at your age at 30 is unfairly important. Because it's like a rocket, the soup to get out of the atmosphere, the amount of fuel you have to burn to get to, uh, out of inner space because it's so thick, is you have to burn so much fuel. And then once you get to a point where you have some money to invest, a reputation, contacts, some credibility, if you can go into space with that trajectory, I just get further faster on less fuel than you do right now. Right. Because, but God, get out of that inner space and there's just no getting around it. It's just a lot of work. It's a, it gets more competitive every day. I don't know anybody that wasn't smart enough to uh, uh, inherit wealth or wasn't smart enough to inherit wealth that is really successful, that hasn't had a 10 or 20 year stretch where they were really burning it from both ends. Mm -hmm. Quick follow up on this. So Scott, you know this, I'm sure listeners know this, Stern is an incredible school. When I'm thinking about folks who are struggling with college right now, I'm thinking of a mm -hmm. person who went to second or third tier directional state university or mm -hmm. even a private college and has just too much debt mm -hmm. during their 20s in search of something that wasn't really going to be there. What would your advice be to folks who are kind of trying to treat this moment as a reset point, considering maybe you got some student debt written off, all those different bits, things? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, the transfer of wealth of one and a half trillion dollars from middle class homes to universities in the form of student debt, some of it's still worth it. I, it, I mean, when I was going to school, I borrowed money to get through undergrad. I borrowed money to get through grad. It was just a no brainer. It was just a good deal. And what universities have done is they've captured that surplus benefit. They've taken it back. And to spend, to borrow $100,000 to get a history degree from a tier two university for the first time, it's not entirely obvious that you're, that's going to work. And to 
shove paperwork in front of an 18-year-old man or woman uh, with a big university logo behind that person and have them sign paperwork, there's just no getting around it. Some of it's predatory. Um, in terms of an individual who uh, is having some debt forgiven, um, I think that the same thing applies. In, you know, this is a chance to be, once you get certified, I mean, there's a few things. One, we're talking about, I'm very, I'm very economically driven. I grew up with no money. I thought I did a decent assessment of America, and I said, economic security is really important to me. It's just paramount to me for a lot of reasons. And by the way, that's not the playbook for a lot of people. A lot of people have decided they don't want to live to work. They want to work to live. They're going to lose, move to a lower cost uh, region. They're going <clears> to <throat> live modestly and have nice lives. There's nothing wrong with that. My playbook was I wanted real economic. I wanted to pursue wealth. And the algebra of wealth is, I think, pretty straightforward. And that is a focus on uh, a talent. Not what is your passion, but what is something you are good at naturally and you think you become great at and invest the 10,000 hours in the requisite bullshit and grit or overcoming bullshit at corporate. The corporate world is totally unjust. Get used to it. Have the resilience to put up with it. Try and become outstanding at something. I don't care what it is. And then once you're outstanding at something, um, you'll start to make money from it. And then um, uh, live like a stoic. Try and figure out how little money you can spend. You know, I, I, my first, you know, my junior and senior in college, I didn't have any money. There was this, every summer I used to go on this thing where I would just eat top ramen and bananas and milk. And I would try and put on 10 pounds of muscle and I would try and spend less than $70 a week. That was my budget outside of my rent. And I trained me, you know, to kind of save a decent amount of money. Uh, from a very early age, I always had, uh, I always saved a little bit of money. And you've, you guys have seen this stuff. The power of compound interest. Of course. And time is just massive. And then the other thing is, as soon as you start making some money, as soon as you start saving some money, just diversify, just low cost ETFs, diversification, because time, once you let time take over, it's just, I was you guys yesterday. I look at you and I think I'm them because there's something in our brains because our species typically for most of the duration of our species on this planet, we didn't live past 35. So we can't imagine ourselves older than 35. So Unless I see myself in the mirror and go, Jesus Christ, that dude's old. I talk to you guys and I think we're colleagues. I think we're the same age. And it goes so fast that if you can figure out a way at your age to save, you know, find a good job and save a thousand, two thousand, maybe if you're killing it, three thousand or more a month, in an instant when you're my age, even if you don't kill it, even if you don't sell your podcasting company, even if you don't join Salesforce and get a shit ton of options, you're still going to be financially secure. And financial security is just so important because kids in low-income households have higher standing blood pressure. The majority of divorces are filed by women, mm -hmm. and it's usually economics involved. People think the number one source of divorce is infidelity. It's not. It's something related to a financial breakdown in the household. Usually the man loses his job, has an emotional breakdown, or his business goes out of business. So we don't talk about it because it feels crass. But I think uh, being very focused on the algebra of how you get to economic security and a key component of that is at your age, and I don't know your situations, but putting yourself in as many situations as possible and taking uncomfortable risks around finding a mate. Um, I, my wife, I met at the Raleigh Hotel at the pool and I walked in and I saw this woman and she was with another woman and a guy. And it was the middle of the day. And I said, before I leave here, 
I'm going to go over to the strange woman sitting with another girl and a guy and introduce myself and try and get something going. And I've done that several times and immediately gotten vibe like, get the fuck away from me. And that's humiliating. That's humiliating. But occasionally, and even more often than not, because most people are kind, they'll start a conversation. And now my oldest boy's middle name is Raleigh because I took those uncomfortable risks. The most important decision, the most important thing in your life will be finding a great partner, someone who loves you, someone who's kind, someone who you really want to have sex with, someone who is economically responsible. Everything is a little harder or a little easier with the wrong or the right partner. And so at your age, you want to be accepting invitations to dinner parties. You want to be expressing interest in people, even when you risk some level of humiliation or embarrassment and giving yourself as many opportunities as possible such that you can find what is, again, the elemental foundation of any society. And that is a productive relationship with someone else. This is great to hear because we're actually old compared to most of the people who listen to the podcast. So it helps you oh, yeah. more. <laughs> for everyone. Half of our audience was not even born um, on 9-11. They were actually, which God, is crazy, crazy whenever we have to explain it to people. I think what I want to dig into, which is kind of interesting, is whenever I hear you talking, I'm hearing a combination of like Dave Ramsey, Jordan Peterson, uh, a lot of other elements of like the quote unquote manosphere. And much of it codes right in today's politics. Mm -hmm. You have been able to do all of this while maintaining your, I, I don't know how exactly you would describe yourself, like socially left, like progressive mm -hmm. leaning, but market mm -hmm. oriented. How, why do you think it's important to try and normalize this message across political spectrums? Well, uh, yeah, I've been called the progressive Jordan Peterson. Um, <laughs> Cringe. Don't embrace that brand. Yeah, please anymore. don't. Yeah. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. Look, I... I, I I think a lot about masculinity and what it means to be a man. And 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 by the way, I don't think masculinity is the domain of people who were uh, uh, born male. Sure. I think a lot of women demonstrate wonderful. I think of masculinity as a it's a it's an invented construct, but I like to define it. And I, the best definition I can come up with is acquiring the skills and strength such that you can protect and advocate for others. You know, that's when I feel like a baller. If mm -hmm. I have these skills to advocate for a child that isn't mine. If I can plant trees, the shade of which I will not sit under, you know, that's when I feel like fucking Tarzan. That's when I feel like I mean something and I'm I'm a man. And I think that's what men should be aspiring to. Um, and I, I think that masculinity and toxicity, toxicity have been inappro inappropriately conflated because of some really terrible behavior. But I think it pays to be aggressive. I think it pays to be strong. I think it, you know, it, and why do you do this? Why do you aggregate strength? Why do you aggregate wealth such that you can protect, you can protect others? And I don't, I think that these are, uh, on the far left, we've decided that uh, masculinity is somehow a bad thing. No, it's not. It's a wonderful thing. And uh, I don't like what I don't like about some of the manscaping is it feels like we're victims and somehow it tends to like feel like thinly veiled misogyny. It is. Yeah. Right. And that it's not your fault. No, if you're in your mother's basement vaping and you're prone to misogynistic content and don't believe in climate change, boss, it's you that's fucked up in the head. And. Uh, you know, and I don't I, I, I think men have to take uh, I think it's a good thing to start from a place of I'm going to take economic responsibility for my household. 
And that sounds sexist. And guess what? Sometimes that means getting out of the way of your partner who's better at that whole money thing and being more supportive of your partner. Mm. So I, I like traditional, you know, I like this notion that masculinity needs a comeback, but it needs to be kind of a kinder, kinder gentler form of masculinity. And also to realize that it it's not something that you you only get to own if you're, you know, if you're born a man. But I like, you know, I consider myself center left. I try not to assign this stuff to any political spectrum because immediately people have a gag reflex if they're on the other yeah. side. The best compliment I get, I get it a lot, is like, I can't figure out if you're uh, liberal or, or conservative. I'm like, good. I don't, you know, why on earth are we establishing an orthodoxy? One of the, and I talk about this and I have charts in the book, one of the just most terrible things that's happened in our society. I love photography and there's been some great colorizations of World War II film, uh, World War II moments. There's this outstanding image that's been colorized of a landing craft at Normandy on o Omaha Beach. And these young men, average age 26, on an inflation adjusted basis, they were making 800 bucks and they're all like 30 of them wading into the water. Like knowing what was waiting for them on the beach where two or three of them would not leave the beach. And I I would bet none of them knew who was a Republican or a Democrat. All they're like, my life depends on this guy and his depends on me. And the fact that now 54 percent of Democrat Democrats with children are worried about their kid marrying a Republican is just so tragic that we immediately decide a third a third of. Uh, people in each party think members of the other party is their mortal enemy. America has never been stronger geopolitically. We're food independent. We're energy independent. The brightest people in the world want to come here. We have the greatest capital inflows. The U.S. dollar is still the reserve currency by a long shot. But we're eating ourselves from the inside out. And I, just this, 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 this totally false notion or a lack of recognition that Americans' best allies will always be other Americans, where did that go? So I think the connective tissue between us is just fraying. It's just so um, incredibly disappointing. And I'd like to think that patriotism is a, a, a renewed call for an appreciation of the blessings that it is what it means to be American is not a left or right issue. But some of this notion that masculinity, I hate this shit from some of these people. I won't even mention their names that are getting a big TikTok following. They refer to women as bitches and talk about manliness in the context of like having some sort of power over women. That's just fucked up in the head. That that's that couldn't be less what it means to be a man. So I want to hit my last one and then Sagar will, of course, pick up the uh, TikTok reference to close us out. But I just want to ask you a question about individualism, mm -hmm. your, your articulation of what a young possibly angry young man should do in their mom's basement, taking responsibility. I, I embrace that. But something you also write about in all of your work is this shareholder capitalism idea of personal responsibility and individualism. Like, you know, you're going to drive ahead. And so you just, you're not contradicting yourself, but can you mm -hmm. just talk about the gray zone um, between those two, between those two different areas? Because I know a lot of Manosphere people will say things like, well, you know what, Scott, like that guy in the basement, there used to be a job for him in a factory mm -hmm. and that doesn't exist mm -hmm. anymore. So can you really just balance out the individualism versus societal forces bit here? There is a job for him. We're at full employment. And uh, and maybe watching Instagram and believing that that they deserve a high paying job or that they don't have the self-discipline to get a, a Christ flip on. If you have a smartphone, you can get a job. Just start making money, whatever it is. Start. I don't care if you're, you know, 
a barista. We've got to stop um, diminishing trades jobs. We need a massive investment in vocational trainings uh, such that we can level up uh, young people, especially young men. 50% of Germans have some sort of vocational certification. It's like 5% in the U.S. So, yeah, I, I, I'm... I'm I'm not entirely sure what which part of my work you're talking about as it reflects individualism. What I try to speak more about is the importance of institutions. I'm an advocate. I would like to have, and it's easy for me to say because I've aged out of this. I would like to have some sort of national service. I'd like a you know my suggestion was a Corona Corps during the uh, epidemic, where young people who are not have much lower fatality rates uh, from the novel coronavirus enter into a, um, a Corona Corps that focused on caring and helping others who were sick. I like what Israel does. I like what some nations in Northern European do, where you have one to two years mandatory service. Um, I know a lot of Israelis that met their spouses in the army. Yeah. I think it creates a, the, the most patriotic Americans are those who have invested the most, specifically our veterans. They have invested the most in America and they're the most patriotic. I find this scary thing where the least patriotic people are tech billionaire men who have built a layer of innovation on top of massive investments from the middle class, whether it's GPS or DARPA or satellite technology from the Apollo missions or EV credits from, from the government. And then they start shitposting the government, saying, well, the government just needs to get out of the way of innovators. It's like, boss, should we get out of the way and no longer supply you with EV credits? Should we get out of the way of that $450 million loan we gave you early on, Tesla? Should we get out of the way of building charging stations all over the nation? I don't care if you're Google, Apple, Moderna. These things were all built on the back of enormous forward-leaning investments from the greatest organization in history, and that's U.S. government. So I, I, I'm trying to lean more into institutions. I'm trying to have more people on my podcast from the government. I know so many people. Find me a tech billionaire, and I'm going to find you someone who's talented but who spoils far outpace their talent. Find me someone in government and I'll find someone whose compensation under indexes relative to their commitment and their talent. And I'm just I'm just fed up with it. I find it obnoxious that these guys Peter Thiel wants to create a floating nation where he doesn't have to pay taxes. He's a fucking government contractor. He gets sick Palantir gets 60% of its revenue. Elon Musk you know SpaceX's biggest client is NASA. And yet they they say these profane things about our government and and uh, I, I just find the whole thing so um, so upsetting. I think there's a virus in our society, especially among tech community, and also I think it it infected me, where we credit our character and our grit for all our success, and we blame the market and government for everything that's not not working out. And I don't have any such illusion. You know, I, I'm I'm a product of big government and the irrational risks the government took on me uh, in the form of, of public education. But I think institutions are really important. I think it's I, I'd like to see more funding for um, our government institutions and also more respect like the kind they have in Israel for our government, uh, our government officials. Anyways, I don't I, I think that young men in their basement need to attach to institutions. I don't care if it's church. I don't care if it's government. I don't care if it's a softball league. I don't care if it's a university. I don't care if it's working somewhere. Uh, but greatness is in the agency of others. Y your age, find others. And don't find them online. I mean, use that as a vehicle. Get out. You know, smell, touch, and feel people. 
Go out, ask, you know, talk to that person in front of you at a Starbucks line, ask him or her out for coffee, join a group, join groups, get involved. Um, I, I think institutions matter. And I think we've had a fraying and my colleague, I'll apologize for this word salad, word salad, my colleague at NYU Stern, Jonathan Haidt says that successful societies have to have strong institutions that we all respect. And I think uh, I just find it so disappointing that we don't have more respect for our institutions. Anyway, I think I, no, I completely quick, agree with that. Go ahead, Mark. I think before you close this out, Sagar, um, I saw you tweeting, um, Scott, with Brendan Carr. Have him on the podcast. He's the FCC commissioner. Yeah. Um, we had him on the show two years ago. Great guest. So I think that's the definition of a great government guest that you should bring on uh, the podcast. He's coming on. Do more he's coming that's on. great. <laughs> yeah. Huge, huge oh, Brendan Because of Twitter. Fans. I said, come on the pod. Actually, he said, can I come on the pod? And I said, absolutely. He'll enjoy it. it. He's he's a good person to talk to. My last thing is on TikTok. You were yeah. at the fore, one of the front, one of people who said, we absolutely need to ban TikTok in terms of American competitiveness and more. That was a couple of years ago that we had that conversation. So last couple of years, the Biden administration apparently considering it right now. Uh, have you? I know you maintain the case, but up given the updated market dominance and more that we've seen from it, what are your thoughts? Uh, so I love TikTok personally. I think it's genius. I'm addicted to it. I, if I got off this pod now, I could I could easily spend two hours on TikTok. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Um, uh, and uh, the the clip that's getting a ton of circulation is my clip on Bill Maher where I said it should absolutely be banned. And I'm an attention whore, and I love saying provocative things that I know will get circulated on Twitter. A more nuanced, thoughtful view is that I think there's a lot of gray. Uh, sunlight in between letting things go as they are and totally banning it. A ban of media feels uncomfortable, and I acknowledge that. I think a spin uh, might make the most sense, where they say, all right, we're spinning it, and uh, it's also going to be entirely, all data is going to be on U.S. servers. I know they're talking about that, but here's the issue. If you have sons, I don't. do either of you have kids? No. No. Okay, so uh, I've never seen anything like this. When yeah, my 12-year-old... When my 12-year-old's on YouTube, he gets into it or he's too into his phone. When he gets on TikTok, he lies down on his side. And it's literally like when the British put opium into China. <laughs> and he just goes into this zone and he is high. And I think if he had his way, we would leave him alone and he'd go into his room and put on diapers so he could watch TikTok for 40 <laughs> hours straight. And there's something about that algorithm, the genius of it, that it just, without you even tr without you even having to decide, oh, I'm going to watch House of Dragons, or I'm going to watch Euphoria. It just tells you, no, no, we know what you want. And it's just a never-ending streaming platform of content. And it's not, it's really addictive. Now, if you believe that there's no separation between the CCP and a Chinese company, which I believe, yes. you know, they disappear a CEO. Can you imagine if, we, if the US government got sick of what Bezos was saying about them and disappeared them for four weeks? That's what they did over there with Jack yeah. Ma. He disappeared and then he showed up and said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start painting now and not say anything about the government. So I think they can do whatever they want. Two, if you recognize that Americans' uh, youth under the age of 18 are spending more time on TikTok now than every streaming network combined, are we comfortable with the notion that the CCP has influence over media that more 18-year-olds are spending more time consuming than any other media, with maybe the exception of YouTube? And- if I were the CCP and I had an invested interest or a vested interest in diminishing our global standing relative to the Chinese, I would absolutely put my thumb on the scales in an elegant and insidious way on content that reflected America in a bad light and raise a generation of youth that said, you know what, our elections are rigged. 
capitalism doesn't work. Income inequality is so out of control. Systemic racism, <clears throat> I'm not going to acknowledge the progress we've made around uh, in our society. I just, America doesn't work. I think the CCP could absolutely raise or influence a generation of our future military leaders, politicians, elected individuals, media, that they wouldn't even know what's happened. It's like, I don't know, a great old movie, The Sting with Robert Redford and Paul Newman. The key to a sting is the mark doesn't know they've been conned. I believe it's happening right now. I don't think we, I don't think we even know what's going on. And I think we're going to raise a generation of, of of kids that just feel a little worse about America. That's what I would do if I were them. So I think this is fairly obvious logic. I think it would be incredibly easy for them to do it. So my viewpoint is we need to do something. We need to say, all right, spin it, make it. A, and I think they deserve economic prosperity for the what they've built. I think the people at TikTok are good people. I think they would love a Chinese wall. The only thing between them and their Gulf Streams and their homes in the Hamptons is the threat of CCP intervention. Right. So they would love it. Unfortunately, they can't they can't build that wall. The CCP gets to do whatever the heck it wants with the company's domain in China. They'll put DD out of business. They put the entire tutoring business out of business because they decided it wasn't good for China. They play the long game. We in America always like to think we're smarter. The Chinese are pretty smart. They've, they've brought a half a billion people out of poverty in the last 50 years. We've actually seen our middle class decline. And one thing they decided early and often is social media, Twitter, Fate, you know, Meta, Google. No, we're not going to have it here. But you should have it. You should have it. And one of those companies, the most ascendant in history, that it's got to a billion customers faster than any platform, we might have a few engineers that can put their thumb on the scale of that algorithm, what our young people see. So I, I absolutely think it's a, an issue to be, to be addressed. And I've been, I've been accused of being xenophobic and you know, rejuvenating jingoism here. I get it. I understand people's concern, but I think this is a real threat. Well, real quick, because that was a great clip, and I want to close this off from those outside critics. This doesn't inoculate Facebook and all of other tech companies in America from whatever things that they've done. All you're actually asking for is to make the relationship between TikTok and the United States much closer to the relationship between Facebook and the United States. Like that's the that's the underlying thing here. Um, I really it, I want to just jump off a bridge whenever folks just sort of say, "But Scott, Facebook's bad too, and why aren't you talking about them?" It's there's an entirely different legal relationship here, and I think people at this point are being purposefully. I used to be more sympathetic towards folks just saying like, oh, I just don't understand the difference here. No, like, I think at this point, it's just purposeful, um, purposely trying to misunderstand what folks like you were saying. So I just wanted to add that in there because I feel really strongly about it. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. And and it just, it's frustrating for me. It's like, why are you saying these things about Facebook? I'm like, dude, have you met me? <laughs> <laughs> I've been I've been yelling about I've called Mark Zuckerberg the most dangerous person on the planet. Um, Facebook is the ultimate the ultimate espionage tool. And I believe the reason they have gotten away with so much, and I realize this sounds paranoid, but it doesn't mean I'm wrong. I believe after senators get their moment on camera to berate Mark Zuckerberg in front of the press, they then go into a confidential Senate security hearing. And he says, you, you still want our help finding Taliban leaders and killing them? I mean, this the Mossad, the NSA, the GRU couldn't have the wildest dreams invented uh, Meta, Facebook, and Instagram. You don't think somehow we're going to find out along the lines that we found out the niece of one of these Taliban leaders was on Instagram, and that's how we GPS located uh, this guy for a drone strike. 
That's, I think that's the implicit deal we have with our platforms, and I like that. Does that let them off the hook for teen depression or for misinformation? 100% no. Should they be broken up? In my view, absolutely. Should one or more of these people, if we find out they knew about teen depression and ignored it, should they come up on criminal charges? I believe so, absolutely. But they're Americans, and they do have just as, just as TikTok has to answer to the CCP, but the CCP can be more efficient about it. I do think that American companies at the end of the day do I'm not meta, I'm not sure, but I think most of them do feel a sense of patriotism. And we have, you know, they're somewhat aligned with American interests. TikTok, not so much, but you're absolutely right. It doesn't let it doesn't let Facebook off the hook at all. That's really well said, and uh, we'll wrap it there, Scott. Be mindful of your time. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Guys, congratulations on your success. And I love I love that you're spreading good work and being great role models for other young people. Thanks for, thanks for your good work. Thank you, sir. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like this sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for a lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.